Welcome back to the Hoffcast. This is episode 108. Still missing episode 100. Uh, we'll get to that eventually. For those of you still waiting, uh, we'll, we'll hit it. We'll hit it one of these days, and you guys will all be like, "Oh, that's why. That's why it was delayed. It was worth the wait." <laughs> but this one, no need to wait. I'm very excited about this. On the Hoffcast today is the extremely talented uh, Matt Balaker who is a great comedian, producer, author, and uh, he's been someone I've known in the Los Angeles community for, what, 15 years now, Matt? Uh, at least 15, yeah. And, and uh, Welcome to the Hoffcast, man. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for I, – I had a goal. I wanted to be number 108, and this is a dream come true. So <laughs> you know, say the, say the 100 for someone. Me. Maybe Rob Delaney can do that or something. I, I want 108, Nick. <laughs> You know what's funny? I hadn't thought about Rob Delaney in a while, except for when I see him on my television randomly. Uh, <laughs> well, but I, he I, was one of those guys that I feel like probably did your show. Oh, several times. And I, I think I brought him up now because one of my first memories with hanging out with you or performing with you was at the West Side Theater in Santa Monica. Okay. And I think that might have been the first time I met Rob because he kind of worked at – he worked in some big high-rise in downtown L.A., and I worked in finance at the time, too, and we sort of bonded over that. And then he did my show, and now I'm doing your show. So, you know, it all comes full triangle. We're doing a full triangle. Um, yeah, you used to run a show. Um, so for those of you listening uh, that aren't familiar with the L.A. comedy scene, uh, Matt used to run a show in the upstairs of this bar on Sunset, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was about a half mile from the, uh, the comedy store. Half mile from the comedy store, I remember making that walk from the comedy store down to the what was it called? It was the Red Roof, Red Rock, Red, Red Rock. Rock. Yeah, yes. And it was Ball Games Laugh Lounge because I, I, you know, as a branding expert, I wanted to take some credit for having people like Nick Hoff and Tom Segura and Christina <laughs> P on the show. Yeah, Maddie Ballgame. I remember yeah. seeing those uh, those and, images and, on Facebook. I'm in my 40s now, so I think I'm slightly too old to go by Maddie. But you you can call me that. But that was yeah, that was my stage. But name that was it, years. right? Yeah. That was the branding, Maddie Ballgame. And what branding. was what was the idea behind that? Well, it was the one nickname that stuck that I kind of liked that wasn't as disparaging as what Mean Kids <laughs> said. And also, when I first was you know sending out of veils. YouTube wasn't really popular, and I wanted a name. That I, I was I was copying um, who was it? Uh, some famous comedian. Uh, I wanted a more androgynous name, so I figured if it was Maddie, the improv might think I was a girl, and I'd have a better chance of getting booked. And gotcha. I did get booked sometimes, but I don't know if that was it. But uh, Jamie Fox, that's that's what he did. So I was taking a page Jamie out of Fo Jamie Fox's book. Everyone knows, had it been Jim Fox, he wouldn't have gone <laughs> There's anywhere. There's no way. So. Uh, uh, that that was pretty pathetic, but you know it was it was what I did, Nick. Keenan Ivory you, Wayans was yeah. extremely disappointed when Jamie Fox showed up at that audition. <laughs> He's not that hot. Did you ever use a stage name, or or is Nick Hoff a stage name? No, Nick Hoff is just a shortening of Nicholas Hoff. Okay, uh, but there are times when I go back and wonder had I had I used Nicholas, where the you know where the career would have gone, <laughs> how, how the trajectory would have changed. Yes. Yeah, but when I was coming up, it was like, you know, Dane Cook, and I felt like, well, Nick Hoff, that's, you know, that kind of that just sounds, sounds like, like yeah. 
That's catchy. Let's do it. But I regret. The only time I regret it is because I, you know, everybody calls me Nick. I don't. Maybe my mom calls me Nicholas when uh, you're in when trouble. She's disapp- when yeah. no, not so much when she's when I'm in trouble because Nick is so much shorter. But Nicholas is like when she's disappointed. It's like, oh, okay. oh Nicholas. Nicholas, why'd you say that again? They're good people. Yeah, it's such high hopes, high expectations for you, and now you've. Did just we not hug you enough, name. Nicholas? Why? Why are you doing this comedy still? <laughs> um, but Nikoff together sounds Russian. Nikoff, so yeah, it, it's like almost it, like a one name thing. Yeah, yeah, Nick and Hoff should be easy, but yet it's difficult for people. They can't figure it out. So I wonder if sometimes Nicholas Hoff may have been the way to go. Well, we have to try that alternate universe sometimes, Nicholas Hoff, and and, and just see where it takes you. And Matthew? Yes, Matt. Yeah, Matt is short for Matthew. I didn't want to, you know, blow the lead so early, but yes. No, no, no. This this is a big question that I've been dying to ask you. (laughs) You you don't pull back, Nick Hoff. You you go for it right away. I respect that about you. Well, okay. In in, uh, the spirit of going for it right away, I was going to save this for a little bit later, but I wanted to talk to you about your show uh, there at the Red Rock because – you know, when I when you and I reconnected a few weeks ago and then I did your show down in Tustin, uh, which is a fantastic show. If anybody's down in the Southern California area, go check it out. Check it um, out. I would get booked at your show and I remember feeling unworthy you at were. those shows because you're <laughs> – <laughs> I knew you. I knew you thought that way. No, no sorry. You were so nice to me when you go. Oh, you. You know, it was great, and you were always nice. You said those things, and in the back of my head, as you were saying those things a couple of weeks ago, I thought, boy, I, I didn't think, and maybe you don't, but I, I didn't think you liked me. I, I thought I had this imposter syndrome, like I'm not supposed to be on these lineups because you did have names that are big now, and in the time they felt big. Right. Well, I, I did like you, and I do, and I think. You were also, uh, you know, you you had the face that you almost wanted to dislike because you you were like you are handsome and and you have a great smile and so it's like I, I wanted in a way to to not like you because you were talented and and good looking and uh, you know it's easy to be put off by that but you were also so funny so no I I, I liked you and I always uh, kind of admired that because. You were coming up then. I mean, you're, you're even more polished yeah. than you are now, and you're definitely good. But it, it takes some guts to go up. Or I mean, like Alonzo Bowden would perform there, and he was like such a pro. Or, right. or Greg Fitzsimmons, and some some of them were working out. But um, no, you always held your own. You're always good, and I, I always admired that you weren't nervous, or at least it didn't seem that way. At least I was so nervous. <laughs> I was so nervous being there, and I felt like I shouldn't have been there the whole time, and so. Because you would book these lineups that were great, and and all these guys that you're naming, you know, they weren't necessarily household names at the time, or even like names that all everyone in comedy knew. But I feel like they did. In I mean, comedy, enough these knew. Were names. I mean, they were working comics. Yeah. You know, and some were millionaires. I mean, but they they were they were <laughs> kind of where I always wanted to get, and and maybe one decade will. Right, right. And and so you'd see these posters come across with the six comics that were on it, and five of them would be great, and one of them would be Nick Hoff. Oh. And I always felt <laughs> odd that I was there. And I always felt like, because you always had this great smile, and you had kind of these Hollywood looks, and I kind of always felt like, I... This guy hates me, and there's and he. It's just because well, I, I bugged you, you him enough. You just made me insecure. No, no, but you were always cool, and maybe it was uh, you know your parents. You were, you were raised well, 
and you you always there was a lot of trash talking uh and i'm sure there is in any like scene but yeah. a lot of people especially when you're doing open mics or like crappy shows it's easy to kind of make friends by putting someone else down uh, right, especially right. if that other person is, is not there i think it's cool yeah <laughs> make fun of your friends you know that's that's cool but if you're not really friends with them i don't think it's as cool to like talk shit and i'm not saying i i never did but i really respected that you didn't and so like whenever i talked with you while we weren't like you know i didn't know you for 20 years or anything like that you were always right. cool and you never like disparaged other people and uh, in LA, that puts you in the top 1%. So congratulations. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Well, yeah, it was always a fun show to do. And I respected the heck out of you because you'd, you'd book these people and then you'd get up there and you had you exuded confidence <laughs> up there. And you just seem like, well, the, he belongs and, and he's got all these very funny and talented friends. And, and here I am like parking <laughs> a mile and a half away. I was like, who brought the bus afford- boy? I, oh, I couldn't afford Hollywood parking, and I, I remember but, just always no, the, walking the, up those stairs. I, I want to dig into this a little bit, Nick, because on one hand, you had the courage or confidence or irrationality to say, I want to perform. So, you know, it, it wasn't like I, you know, was making you, but then you feel, and, and I, I, I'm this way too, so I'm, I'm not like, I don't want to put, put you in a corner, um, but then you know, you get booked and then you feel unworthy. I mean, it's that constant like narcissism, insecurity that a lot of us face, but uh, obviously you were talented, you are talented, um, and you were at enough gusto to want to perform, but then you have this kind of apprehension. What what, what do you think that is, Nick? Well, I mean, I, this, is, this is my podcast. I think I should be asking the exactly. question. Well, so what do you, what do you think? That? That's a great way. question. It's well, a great I, I, question. I think, I mean, you, you mentioned it, and, and we discussed it in Greg Giraldo, a comedian's story. Uh, Wait, this one right here? Is this oh, the same one oh, that you're talking about? Handsome, handsome, two handsomes. Uh, <laughs> Greg Giraldo had the imposter syndrome, and that's what, you know, I knew nothing about this before researching it, but, but therapists categorize it as, as a condition where, you never feel worthy and like you're, you're a fake or an imposter. And at some point you'll be found out. And I yeah. think it's particularly prevalent in comedians. And I'm not saying that's what you experienced. I think I've had shades of it, but it's, it's a very interesting dynamic, especially in a group that is seeking the limelight. Right. So I right. mean, maybe that was something you, I mean, or maybe it's one of those things like, okay, you know, you really want to ask that pretty girl out. And then she says yes, and you're like, "Oh crap!" Now I have to go out with her, you know. So it's like there, there's there's the <laughs> chase, and, and then there's the reality. So I mean, that that could be some. Well, of it yeah, too. there's something very real to that example you gave too, because yeah, in a moment or in a text message or an email or whatever it is, you can be extremely charming, charismatic, funny, whatever that thing is that got you the thing. But then you show up and you actually have to be that thing for an extended period of time. <laughs> the reality it's sets in, yeah. I think the only thing more than comedy that would be this way that I, you would feel this imposter syndrome would be, uh, in my mind, it would be a magician. Oh. Because you know where that rabbit went. Of you course. You know where it was. Yeah. It <laughs> was in you your feel back pocket the whole time. You had to do a little like, card trick and hand waves to distract the audience. Yeah, the rabbit sneezes <laughs> up your sleeve, and all of a sudden the whole thing is blown. You just stand there like a jackass. <laughs> 
feel like a moron. Yes, he's been up there this whole time. So yes, comedians I am and magicians. You, you picked the two most socially awkward groups in existence. Congratulations, Nick. Do you feel like I don't think comedians are that awkward? I think there are awkward ones, but I think comedians by and large are pretty good. What do you think? What do you mean by good? Like uh, in, in terms of like social graces or. Uh... I think you shove a comedian in a party and some of them are going to be extremely weird, but I think a lot of them can adapt. And, I think and that that's a good, good observation. I, I think, and this is guessing, they tend to be more introverted, but not, not to like a scary level. And I like your, your party uh, example. Cause when I w was running that show, I would, uh, I would volunteer at the school and I'd have like guest speakers come in and okay. comedians were always my go-to if like the firefighter couldn't make it or, or, you know, like sure. the CFO <laughs> and they adapted so well, Nick. I remember having uh, Ryan Sickler and like this girl was trying to mess with them. You know, was, they were 17 year olds at this like downtown yeah. LA school. And she's like, have you ever masturbated on stage? And he just goes, no, I have not masturbated on stage. Whereas like, if you would have put any normal person, they would freak, you know? And it was yeah. just like, she might've asked him where he grew up. And I think <laughs> comics, have, like you said, take him to a party. They, they have that adaptability that I, I think makes them play nice with others. What, what, what right. say what, you? What was it that, um, yeah, I, I think they're, um, just being quick on their feet and and wanting to please mm -hmm. makes them you know most of us are kind of puppy dogs in that <laughs> we want to find a way to win the situation or or at least survive the scenario and so and i think, I think that, that surviving the scenario i think separates stand-ups from actors and I, I know some do both but if uh -huh. you're an actor you don't really have that audience reaction or right. you, if you do, you filter it and you have people tell you the good and you, and you don't look at the bad reviews if you, if you can do that. But when you're performing live, like you said, like you have to kind of win them over right then and there. So I think it, it has to make you a little bit more down to earth or at least be able to fake it. Does that make you weird in other aspects of life, needing that immediate gratification? Probably. <laughs> but I think it, to, to your point, it makes you adaptable to situations where if you are trying to please, I mean, there are probably issues with being a people pleaser, but it probably makes you a little more fun to have a parties or you know, sure. if you're at someone's, if you're at dinner for the first time with a group, like you can probably play more nicely than someone who's just like, you know, more rigid. Do you, are, are there any negative aspects to that though? Are there any things that, uh, that because you're a comic, uh, maybe you're a little less likely to hold back on an inappropriate joke or something like that. <laughs> Do you ever find that? Oh Yeah. Uh, like I've had, um, I've had real jobs, you know, off and on, <laughs> which I, I don't yeah, yeah. recommend. I don't. Um, but like, I'll say things that I don't think are at all inappropriate. And then like, you might get something from HR and I never worked at like big firms, but like, I know people who did. And I was like, Oh crap. Did I just say, you know, like, did you get a couple from HR? No, because I, well, one, it was actually before I was hired. There was a YouTube clip <laughs> and, and I purposely put like a, uh, what I thought was a very tame one. And then, uh, so I don't know if they found that or there might've been this dirty one that I did at Tom Arnold's Laugh Factory show where I talked about like, there, 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 there's, there's a lot of bodily fluids involved. Is this a clean sure. show? Like, I, I don't know. Like, no, like, it's, what but I mean, I don't want to get too, yeah, but I mean, it, it was a dirty show and I talked about like, you know, uh, 
hookers that were of different sexes, you know, like, you know, just, it was, it, it, Sure. And I don't, I still don't know if that's what they saw, but I remember I had this really awkward call because I, I put on my resume, you know, comedian, and they're like, we don't know where your heart is. And I, and I still didn't, I didn't want to ask them, like, what show did you watch? Because <laughs> if they watched what I thought the clean one was, I was like, this will be an awful fit because it was very, like, TV friendly. But maybe right. they saw the dirty one. And so that was an example of something where I didn't really think either was that awful, especially given the context. So you but didn't say they, anything, they did. but you think they researched you. Oh, yeah. And I remember kind of and, – and, and in hindsight, that job didn't last long, and it was not a good fit. But they researched me, and I, I needed the money. <laughs> that sounds so bad. Oh. Like we, we had a second son on the way, and we just moved to Orange County. And I, I, I kind of just said, you know, that that was me five years ago. I'm a father. you know, And, and I felt so bad it. after saying it. I was just like, oh. You know, and, and that's, that's probably a good indicator of, you know, you, you have to be honest. Um, yeah. and, and even now, like I'll do consulting work or I'll, I'll do definitely plenty of non-showbiz jobs or I've helped like cannabis companies. And, and now I just kind of say it and I have the yeah. luxury where I, you know, I, I have a little bit of money in the bank. I mean, I'm not like loaded or anything, but you know, it's, it's hard. And, and I see people when they're coming up and like, you want to be true to like your, your art for lack of a better word. But like a lot of us, we, we need to get day jobs. And now it's like one small, one bad joke on stage can can prevent you from getting hired so you felt like for you saying that was me five years ago you kind of felt like that was you betraying your comedic self yeah yeah i i thought it was selling out and it was also saying kind of what i had to say but also i didn't really know because i was scared i mean you're you're a good dad and you have more kids than me but one kid was tough this. And and I knew my wife, like, she's always been supportive of my comedy, but I think now she realizes, like, this is just who I am. But it's like, uh, you know, it's easier when both are there all the time. Or if I had a steady job where, you know, every two weeks a paycheck was coming in and, the, and there was health insurance, like, that's that's pretty attractive to most normal humans. And, sure. uh And so I was, I was scared. I was like, may, maybe that was me and maybe I have to be this, you know, clock puncher now. And, and, and my comedy time was you know, it was kind of over. I mean, I'll do it from here or there, but that, that was, uh, I don't, I don't want to overstate it. Like, you know, I was, I was in the depths of depression, but it, it was looking back that that was a pretty miserable time. Well, what are, what are the, uh, all time greats went through a period of, uh, what Rodney Dangerfield, mm -hmm. what sold something door to door for like 15 years in the middle of his career, didn't he? Wasn't like Cutco Knife or like something like that, where he's like literally a door-to-door -door salesman, like knocking and smiling and yeah. Yes, like, and he had gone from like I, I want to say it was like age thirty-five to fifty or something, something like that. Yeah, because he really peaked in his late fifties and beyond. Right, and he had been writing that whole time, but he took that period, and I wonder how many of those thoughts he was having. Yeah, oh God, yeah, <laughs> like like every time he's he's trying to. Hawk some silverware, you know, and, and yeah, he, talk about feeling like an imposter. Yeah, that's but why I, I never I, wanted to be a door guy at the comedy store. I feel like <laughs> you can't seat somebody and then go on stage. I know, but you're like, I, I'm, I'm in the business. I mean, it's so hard because it's like I don't fault anyone for making a living. I mean, I think there are a lot of kids who come to LA <laughs> whose parents are bankrolling it, and it's like you, right. you got to pay the bills. And it's like, what do you do? You know, I mean, I, I, I think when you're on stage that should speak for itself. And like, if you're selling insurance on your off time or you're selling scripts, I don't really care. But I think there comes a time where in order to get good, where you can command like Nick Hoff money on stage, you, you got to just do it all the time. Um, yeah. 
but it's 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 hard to do it all the time if if you're trying to put food on the table in in other ways. Well, that's kind of that happy ignorance that you were talking about, like knowing that I was beneath your show and still asking <laughs> to do it. There was there was, you know, a little bit of like what do they call it? willful blindness or something like that, where you you say, I'm just going to go in because, yeah, for the first several years of comedy, it's a losing money oh, yeah. prospect. This is very much a hobby, an expensive hobby, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a a, a vocation. Where yeah. you, you it probably doesn't send you to heaven as fast, but who who knows? Way less. Yeah. And, I, and and your show was on Sunset. That bar was not the most expensive place, but it also wasn't inexpensive. I remember right. buying beers up there, going, Oof, "I just <laughs> bought two beers. I'm in I'm in trouble." Can I afford the DUI I'm going to get later today? You know, you have there to was, have those uh, those thought processes. <laughs> never got the DUI. Oh, good, good. Me did, neither. Did you ever? No. No, I I lived walking distance to that place. So. Um, oh, beautiful. If, if I drove, I definitely would have. But no, I, I uh, I walked. I stumbled home. Did you have to walk up the hill or down the hill? Up there, down back. So it kind of worked. That's nice. But, yeah. Nice. When you had energy, you went when up. I had, yeah, I, I had a friend who lived down that hill, and I would park in his neighborhood to walk up to go to like the comedy store and stuff, mm-hmm. rather than pay for parking. And so I think I've walked up that hill many a time you, you get some quad muscles so i i was thinking about like some of the people we had there you know yourself included but like now if you turn on netflix or hbo it's like inevitably i'll see some of and yeah. and and there's some i just get like for, for instance tom segura he had a really high hit rate on his new jokes like they wouldn't okay. all work but it seemed like 80 percent or 70 percent like he would just write something and they'd be like pretty good then he'd come back a month later and they'd be like ready for tv really really but but then there are some people and i'm not saying they're not talented it's just like i don't know why certain people are big and others aren't based on like working with them 15 years ago you know i mean i know a lot's happened but what do you think are some of the ingredients to commercial success for stand-ups because i really want to copy that (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I, if I had it figured out, and uh, we might not be having this conversation right now, you'd be having it with somebody else about why the heck is Nick Hoff on my television right now? Why, why does he have so many specials out? I remember him on my shows. He was oh, garbage. No, no. I mean, I, you're uh, and, and enough with the false modesty. You're a working comic who's, who's fantastic, and you have billions of dollars ahead of you. Um, but that aside, I mean, what, what <laughs> do you ahead. think? Is it, is it hustle? Is it... Uh, I, I don't think there's a replace. There's probably not a replacement for hustle. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of the people that you see on a regular basis on TV had a poor work ethic. I could be wrong. I could be misplacing somebody. There may be somebody with a horseshoe. <laughs> uh, but I'm trying to think of the people from either the generation right ahead of me or even my generation that made it that weren't working hard all the time at it. Yeah, I remember um, doing Elijah Schlesinger's show. It was, it was uh-huh. right near mine. And then she became a regular. And I thought I worked hard, you know, because I would go and, and hand out flyers and, and, like, get embarrassed when people wouldn't. You know, I, I, I'd, I'd get out there and I'd do it, like, once a week or twice. She would do it every day. Or then, like, she'd do a show and then immediately ask for another one. And I, I remember thinking, like, God, like, you just did it. And then now yeah. I'm thinking like, but it, it was like she would do it in a nice way. It was, it was, but the, my, my point is 
she just hustled and hustled and hustled right. and like she's talented and all that stuff. But I, I, I think th there are going to be a few people that just have connections, but you really need that grind. You really need that you know, yeah. perseverance. Did you have that? Did you feel, do you feel like you're a hard worker? I do. I, I think though now I don't have the same showbiz drive. Like I love stand up, but I'm, mm -hmm. I have a wife who has a real job. I don't want to, like, I never wanted to be an actor. Like, I would okay. be happy, like, I did, I love doing friends skits and stuff like that, or, you know, maybe being on Saturday Night Live or something like that, where, right. you know, it's like more of a funny actor, but, I, you know, that was, that was never my goal. So I would love to be able to say, all right, I'm performing at Omaha and sell it out. That's sort mm -hmm. of my goal, or, or being able to fill, you know, a few hundred seats without, without killing myself, but... I, you know, I've also worked in investment funds. I, I've, I've coached, you know, like I've written books. I, I think I'm a little too fragmented. Like I've never okay. had that, that one singular focus where it's that or nothing else. And it's like now, I mean, as much as I enjoy stand-up, if it's that or having kids who, you know, you know, end up at Chippendales stripping or something like that, you know, I'll, I'll take a few less gigs. I just have, I have more disparate priorities. Right, right. And how, you know, I've heard that described as uh, the different kinds of flashlights. Like if you adjust the end of it, some people have the type of focus where it's like real, like laser straight. And you can, you don't see anything except for the one thing that that flashlight is pointed at. And so the rest of the things are dark. You don't get distracted by things. You just focus on that. And then a lot of us, which I think is me and it sounds kind of like it might be you, like have one of those wide throw ones where right. there's a bunch of things around. And you know what they say is we may not be as focus but we're survivors because that's how you survive in a world where there could be a bear come like that was like something that evolved hmm. uh from years and years of constant threats from all around well you so have to adapt on the fly like if, if a jaguar is running at you to your right you gotta book left pretty yeah. quickly and you might not ever make it to the you know rock that you were heading toward but at least you you know were able to evade the saber-toothed tiger that was <laughs> you know coming from out of nowhere I don't like saber tooths. Yeah, I, 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 that, that's why, you know, you, you got to do what you can to avoid those prehistoric animals coming after you. Well, back in the day, that <laughs> was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Evolution takes years, my friend. <laughs> it, it does. Um, and, and, and on that, I, I like that analogy. Like, I think if you are laser focused, your, your odds are better. But in showbiz, it maybe goes from like one in a million to one in 900,000 or something. You know, it's like sure, it improves your yeah. odds, but it's certainly no like guarantee. But it, it, it kind of, you know, you and I seem like we had a similar trajectory, uh, like in terms of family and kids. Like how old were you when you had your first child? 32. About, yeah, exactly yeah. the same as me. So not young, but not old. Yeah, kind of like the normal age. Like I, I would have waited, but, you know, my wife's got that biological clock thing. But, yeah, that how, how did comedy change when uh, when your first popped out? Well, material changed significantly. I went from just talking about mundane, everyday type things to very specific stories about what was happening, which like I enjoyed. Front to back versus back to front. Right. You got it. Um, but like that, you know, there are people that have a singular focus that like Jerry Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. And then he ended up getting married, I think, in his late 40s or 50s. Yeah, because she, she turned 18 then. and then he <laughs> waited. He waited till she was a senior in high school. And they could then find After prom, her. he put a ring on it. 
Was she the super young one? No, he dated a super young one. She was still young. Oh, you're right. 18. Yeah, and she was real young. Like he under dated 20, like yeah. a high school student, and then they broke up, and he dated a girl who looked a lot like her, but was right. maybe a bit older. You know, for a few months, and then they got married. And you know, the first one is pissed. <laughs> yeah, the first one's like, "What? <laughs> where's my, I don't get any residuals? Or, where's I my alimony? And yeah. That's over. <laughs> yeah, can you give imagine? me a brownstone at least, Jerry? She has to look at her life. Like, maybe she still has a great life. She probably does. If she was in the upper... If she was on Seinfeld's radar as a 17-year-old, she's probably doing okay. (laughs) But I wonder if she ever thinks about missing out on that syndicated money. Oh, I'm sure a few times a week. Right? Like, maybe had I kissed him one more time. (laughs) Yeah. If I would have told him, you know, don't do that gig in Cleveland, uh, he'd love me more. Who knows? (laughs) Um, But, yeah, he didn't... I, I. I think of him as one of those hyper-focused, driven guys that, you know, probably has that flashlight that's just focused on one thing straight mm-hmm. ahead, and he's able to tune the rest of the things out. And uh, and then, but but you got married. How what, how old were you when you got married? I was thirty. Thirty. Um, so, so were you got, married when you did Red Rocks? I did. Where I was, uh, day, you know, that that's why I wooed her. You know, like <laughs> I have some dank bar shows, sweetie. Check uh, out this. Show, invite right? invite your med school friends over. They'll be really impressed with me. Would you like a uh, drink ticket, sweetheart? <laughs> exactly. I'll give you two. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it was funny. Like a lot of I, I when I started comedy, I was very single, and I think it helped keep me single. Then I met a girl who I actually liked, and then we get engaged, and then married, and kind of through that time. In gotcha. fact, that she was the reason I moved. From LA, she got a job in Palo Alto, uh, and uh, it was funny because she got a job uh, to be like a, an ear surgeon, and I had just become a paid regular at the Hollywood Improv, where I'd get like twelve dollars uh-huh. a spot, and I was really thinking like, hmm, should I leave this? I, I, I got some stability here in Los Angeles, I know, sweetheart. <laughs> my hands stamped down there on Melrose. Exactly. Who was the? Was it uh, what's his name? The uh, that that passed you over there. Uh, what was his? Bud Friedman. Was it that guy. Well, yeah. Oh, Bud of, uh, passed you. I guess. And, and no. And then wow. it, was, it was no. Um, I remember having lunch with Bud, which was like awesome. Uh, That's just, amazing. Just weeks I've never before even met I, him. I, I left, and and that, that was me emailing him asking to have lunch with him. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then God, it was Rita. I think it was Rita. Okay. And I don't remember like a formal like your pass. It was just I started getting regular gigs, and I would get paid for you know so. Yeah, it wasn't like the comedy store where they put your name on, or there's right. I don't I don't remember like fanfare, but no, but it's like it, all of a sudden you can submit yeah, a veil. Yeah, I could just submit a veil, and, and they would get back to me. I, mean, I could always submit, and, they'd be, and then uh, it was the Maddie part. You know, they're like, "Oh, maybe you're a girl. Come on, we'll, we'll, we'll book you." <laughs> um, yeah, I, I remember. I still saved my. I still have it somewhere in my keepsakes, like uh, my first rejection letter from the Hollywood Improv. You they know, actually wrote that... you back. Well, that's nice. And, yeah, it was it was Jamie at that point. Um, Jamie, what, uh, Jamie, he's still. I want to say Masada, but he's the Laugh Factory nope, guy. No, like, he's yeah, the Laugh Factory. I was like, no, Jamie, I don't think he... uh, Dang it, I can't remember. Not his last Taylor. Name, but... Did he ever work there? No, no. Okay, that, but I submitted... I'm out of Jamie. Sorry, Kennedy. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. Was Kennedy? It was okay, Jamie yeah, Kennedy. Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> he, he was out of screen money. It was out of screen. And, yeah, and. Um, no, it was uh, Jane. I can't remember his last name. Anyway, yeah, I submitted. It was like early days. I'd mm-hmm. probably been doing stand up year, year and a half, and okay. I had a little DVD that I mailed to the three clubs that I knew of, and um, and they were one. Of the, they were the one that got back to me, and he had notes. He's like, "This joke works. This joke needs more oh, of wow. this. This one." And he's like, 
you know, shows promise. I can tell you're new. Submit again in six months. And in a way, I, to me, that was like I was happy that it wasn't that easy. Right. It, it means more if it was. Uh, it was something to yeah. chase after. Had they said, great job, submit, avails, you know, I might have been like, I got this. It just, <laughs> you know, rested. Yeah. It I know. Have, it, it shows. like, And at the time, you're like, God, I've been doing this for 14 months. Like, <laughs> you know, I, was like, I put in my dues, man. <laughs> how long do they expect me to go without those $12 paychecks? I swear to God. Um, yeah, I, I remember getting that rejection letter that felt good. It was one I, of I'm those. impressed they had so much thought to it. Like, I was just used I, to not hearing back or... If I'm lucky, I'm just going to know. But I mean, they're going to yes like, for nothing. Like, yeah, give me something. Yeah. Give me, I always think that with people. Just give me – say yes or no. I can take no. Right, right. No is easy. No, I mean, no is probably the second best answer a lot of times. <laughs> or yes, the second best yes. re, re, you know, results. Yeah, but just the abyss. I've sent so many emails into the ether that never land. So how, how do, has it changed? Because – now, I mean, I guess people could submit links instead, but, you know, I don't have the same, I don't do the same stuff I did 15, 20 years ago to, to get booked places. Like, from your knowledge, right. what, what's different now well, than... I feel like thing? if you sent a physical tape, you <laughs> they would, like, mark you on some list. Like, yeah. this dude's a psychopath. They're like, let's, let's book him into a hospital or, you know, some safe place where you can get the There's still one the club that yeah. does it. There's one booker that does it, and she requires you send a DVD still. That's so smart, though. That's going to eliminate 99% of submissions. Yeah. So many people are like, I, you know what, I'm not even going to. But you're probably also missing out on some of the better ones. They're like, I don't need this headache. Yeah. Like, I'm already working enough. That it, but, yeah, it is like this very basic level of can you jump this one meaningless hoop <laughs> to get in the door? If so, then we'll take a look. Yeah, she probably doesn't get that many, so maybe it is brilliant because huh. you send links. I don't know. Um, okay, so you got married at like 30 mm -hmm. and had a wife that has this cushy Palo Alto job. She's an ear doctor. Yeah. Although ENT, at the time it was, yeah, it was not cushy. Uh, she was an ENT and then she, she got a residency, which is like to further specialize in ear surgery. And and it's sort of like being a postdoc. It, it's, okay. it's like a nice status, but I think she made under minimum wage or close to it. Like if, when you account for the hours, right? So right. she was, I want to say this was, you know, 2012-ish, 10-ish. I could be Did, wrong, but I think it was probably about 45, 50,000 a year, which is not for amazing. Palo Alto is for nothing. like rent and you know, I mean, and like it, right. like I I had a day job that I lost shortly after we moved there. That's this is a common theme for me. Um <laughs> so so you know, it's definitely stable, but money is tight, especially at the beginning, because you have sure. debt, and then like we had kids. So I mean, I don't want to say like I never thought like we wouldn't eat, but I did think, can we afford rent? Plenty of times, right? Right. Isn't that an interesting line of yeah. uh, will we eat? Some people definitely oh, I, think I mean, will I, we eat. I had friends who are just like lifers when it comes to stamp. Like they will do nothing else, and they have no problem like eating out of trash cans. And you know, more power to them. I just. I, I never trash. had it's like you know maybe I was too much of a fat cat you know like so I was never that like committed I've never done trash but <laughs> yeah. for the first you know five years I was definitely just on a healthy diet of bean and bacon soup like the mm -hmm. cheapest thing that I could get 
at Ralph's. That's what I was eating every day. And it didn't bother me. I mean, you get your calories, and, and, and it's like if you just learn how to make it, you know, you have, you have some life skills too. So, Who yeah, was I mean, it? It was who's the? It was Patrice O'Neill. I heard somebody say he said all you need is a little ledge. You know, you don't need a lot of space. You don't need a big apartment. You know, you just need just a little ledge, just somewhere to perch. That's or, it. Or, or jump off if it's not working out. You just <laughs> you, you make sure it's up high. Make sure it's up high. At least three stories. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So thirty, and then you move, and that was about the time where I felt like early on that I was hearing that you were writing a book. Now maybe I've got my timelines all screwed up, but when did you start? Yeah, I, we moved back to Southern California, gosh, or 2014. So yeah, that, that's kind of when the idea. Came. Yeah, God, that was a long time ago. Um, and I got another job that I. This was the one where they like scoured me a little bit online. Um, okay. And I needed a project, and and I didn't know how much stand up I'd do, and uh -huh. so this book became my project. And I I thought I'd be done in like a year and a half, two years of tops. I think it was five years. <laughs> I'll knock this out. Yeah, Give me just, Microsoft you know, Word, open that thing. Get some coffee, I'll go to Starbucks, we're good. Yeah, okay, so, uh, yeah, I want to definitely hit on this because I have some questions. So uh, Matt wrote a book, Greg Giraldo, A Comedian's Story, available now. Uh, where can they get this book? Uh, Amazon, Target, most places. But, I mean, Amazon, Audible, uh, you know, if you don't like reading, you can listen to it, so. Uh, there you go. Um, yeah, and you and you said that the guy that reads it on Audible sounds a little bit like he Greg. Does, or he's trying yeah. to do a little. I, I think bit of he's that. a stunt double, at least a voice stunt double. So probably most people listening, I would imagine, aren't aware of who Greg Giraldo is. Super talented uh, comedian who was widely considered like one of the smartest comics. At least in my mind, that's the way I saw him. Mm -hmm. Kind of a comics comic what, too. A comics comic. Um, just highly intelligent. He felt like he was better than us, not only in comedy, but like on an intelligence level. He just felt like he, he his mind was at such a higher place than most people. Would like you... he could go on Jeopardy and win, and it would not yes. be a surprise. He'd be like, oh, I, I expect that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like uh, Norm MacDonald, although Norm MacDonald was unassuming, he, he liked to play the dumb guy. Mm -hmm. But Greg played the smart guy. Yeah, and I think he, he could play the smart guy in a way that he wasn't talking down to the audience. Which Probably is, not. Which is hard. Because, I mean, when true? you're as brilliant as you and I are, Nick, sometimes it's yeah. easy to get caught up in our own intelligence. Uh, well, you know, if a peasant it's, looks it's, me in the eye. It's tough to, I, yeah, dumb it down to, to the commoners out there. <laughs> uh, what was it? And, and, and he tragically passed away, uh, what, 2010? Yeah. 2010. And uh, what was it that uh, made you like single out him and his story? Did you did you know him? Did you meet? Him? I didn't did know him personally. I met him a couple times, like just fanboying after shows uh -huh. and, and shaking yeah. his hand. Uh, and I, I think probably why I wanted to write the book so much is because I didn't know him, and he wasn't the type to put his personal life on social media. Right. And uh, and there wasn't a book written about him, and I thought that was just like an injustice. Sure. It, it was like it would be like if uh, if said Kurt, if Kurt Cobain had no books and, and he, he has several, but I was like, <laughs> what is wrong with this world when Greg freaking Geraldo doesn't have a book? And by God, I'm I'm the one who's going to do it. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. So going in, did you uh, – because I'm interested in the process. I'm interested in the subject matter as well, but I'm also interested in the process of – you've never written a book before. Never. I I was editor-in-chief of my high school paper. So, yeah, I I did. See, see, got that on the top of the resume. Uh, But so outside of being a part of this world of stand-up comedy – you kind of had nothing to go on. Did you have an into the family? Did you, was there something that you had to get permission for? Did you have to? What? I, I need. I had needed permission. I had no experience. I mean, I'd written for like shows, and and I I, I been hired here or there to like write uh-huh. stuff, but never yeah. like biographies and books. I did not know the family, um, so I, I I had none of the criteria you needed, but. I did know a lot of comics and I had been doing stand up for long enough where like people could vouch for me as like knowing me. And so I think it was, um, sure. I knew Jesse Joyce a little bit okay. and Jesse was Greg's opener for a long time on the road. And Kareth Foster is a good friend of mine. And she lived in New York just before moving to LA and she knew like all the comedy seller people or seemingly all of them. Sure. Um, and, she actually connected me with Greg's manager and who was also one of his close friends, Rick Dorfman. So uh-huh. I, I was like two or three degrees from those needed connections. Sure. Sure. That, uh, yeah. This is, I mean, willful blindness seems to be the, <laughs> uh, the theme of this podcast so far because yeah, just jumping in with no swimsuit. No yeah, swimsuit. You, you had okay. heard about swimsuits. I, I, I was like the, the boy on the Nirvana Nevermind cover. Everything was just dingling and hanging out. <laughs> And 20 years later, we yeah, it's like, I want it. some money, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so you said, I'm going to jump in. And how did, I don't know Wayne Jones. How, this is the other guy that uh, was involved in. Yeah, he's, he's kind right? of the, the, the brains behind it. So what I did, Nick, is a, a, after contacting Jesse and uh, Kareth Foster, I, I interviewed uh, Greg's manager. And then uh-huh. from that, I interviewed his 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 wife or his widow. And when you say interviewed, you're calling them up on the phone. You're meeting with them personally. These these they're because they were in New York. I called them on the phone called and just did like a, recording a reco- this? recorded uh, interview. The first one I didn't because I I didn't even know how to. This shows oh, how yeah. dumb I was. Yeah, I, I was just like an old school <laughs> journalist, like oh, give me you know writing a uh, we take notes on hand. I was like, oh, this this recording device is better. And then I knew like. Uh, Greg Fitzsimmons, and so I uh-huh. then contacted the people I knew and would just just interview them. So I, I I spent about six seven months interviewing people, and I was like, okay, I, I now have like some work behind this. And it was also getting a little bit scared. It's kind of like when, when you're talking about the Red Rock days. Like I knew I wanted to do it, but then when it looked like it might happen, I was getting more nervous because like yep. I didn't yeah. know if I had the chops. And so I was like, damn, I I have this job. I have lots of you know, probably 20 hours of interviews, maybe more, but I don't have enough money. I don't even know like what to do. And so I, I, I did what anyone does. I, I started a Kickstarter campaign where I okay. said like, you know, I, I put excerpts from, from interviews I did and I put some photos so they could tell like I'd done work. And I said like, yo, right, right. I need like 2,500 bucks. That'll help, you know, get me a manuscript. It'll help have, get a legal review. And I'm looking for a co-author. So if anyone has experience, you know, let me know the, the, the money might go to help pay for co-author. Right. right. Um, so that helped because Jeff Ross uh, retweeted it. And this was before I even had a Twitter account or actually one I would check. And um, apparently Jim Gaffigan got wind of it and, and started saying around. So bef- 
gosh, it was like not even a week. I got the money, you know, which to them is like nothing, you know, like, right, but to me, right. 2,500 bucks might've been like 750,000. And then I, I, I was like, if near the end of the campaign and this guy, Wayne Jones submitted like a pretty generous donation. And I sent him okay. an email just being like, dude, thank you. Like it was, it was, that oh, it was more than I needed. It was like, we'd reached the benchmark. And I was like, kind of, right. why are you doing this? He's like, I just really want it to happen. And then I did some research on him and he was an academic librarian and an author. So like a little bit after that, I was like, might you be interested in hey, co-authoring this? And he totally was. And uh, without him, <laughs> I, I don't know if it would have been made because, you know, you kind of need someone or should say, I need someone to periodically just, you know, kick me in the ass. And, sure. and, and when I took people's money, um, that was also one of those things. It's like, you know, it wasn't millions, but if I took, if I, yeah, it's that accountability. If I would have taken your money, and not delivered, I, I, I just feel like I'd feel terrible. And uh, maybe that's what I, I should that. do at the beginning of every project that I think, am I going to finish this? I should take some money. That's a, I'd, and, and, and do it publicly because I, I remember getting people like, a few years in who like gave like 20 bucks. They'd be like, pull the dildo out of your ass and finish this project. I was like, um, I can do both. I, you know, don't yeah. tell me how to live my life. I, I like what this a great, dildo. but I was yes, like, it kind of, it kind of worked. Cause I mean, they were that like, that was literally what they would say. Like I'd get emails, like, like well, it had been five years. It had been five years at this point, right? Or and like then there was some. It's like, plus? yeah, it'd probably been three years. But like, you're chasing interviews. Like, remember Jamie Masada? My first contact was owner of the Laugh Factory. Owner of the Laugh Factory, and did a great interview. Like, I'm so glad wow. I waited. But it took a year because you know it's one yeah. of those. All right, we'll do it in two weeks. Oh, something came up. We'll do it three months. You know, before you know it, yeah, it's a year, and that happened. Or like. There'd be some like Jim Gaffigan who has like a big touring schedule. I, I can't. He's not just going to drop everything to interview with my dumbass. So it's like when you're when you're chasing uh, celebrities, it, you're kind of at their mercy. Is your wife supportive at this time? No, she was then. Now, <laughs> uh, wait, no, no, what? Yeah, no, no. She's very, she, it's weird. Yeah, she's very supportive, but I think the, the best way of support is just kind of keeping it separate. Um, okay. You know, like she. Uh, I mean, I guess she's supportive in that I, I have a house and food. So, I mean, you know. But she wasn't saying, like, what are you doing? Why are you writing this book? It's No, I, I think she was frustrated at times, especially when actually, like, our son was born. And, like, uh -huh. I'm so torn. And, and as you know, when you have new kids, you're just freaking tired. And, like, you're not your fight over dumb stuff. But she was never, like, why are you doing this? At least out okay. loud. So, you know, I, I, I found a good one. I, I got to be count good. my blessings that. She was never like, why? I mean, she has joked about my gay obsession with Greg Giraldo, but, you know, that's that's pretty. Yeah. Wild, so, yeah. <laughs> um, like, it's it's by sweetie. It's not gay. <laughs> Honey, you're still in the picture. Yeah, he, he's I'm, dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do do like, you... you're still in the picture. She's dead. I'm going to clip that one. Does it feel. Are you sad about Greg's life? When yeah. You look at it. Yeah. I mean, that was another thing. Like, I loved doing it, and I liked feeling closer to like his legacy. But uh, there was a lot of sadness, you know. And and I don't mean the book is sad. I, I think it's it's not, and de definitely worth purchasing. But it's like he's someone I admired so much, and in many ways, especially when I started out, would be like that's who I aspire to be. And I never it'd be like Michael Jordan, like. I'd be happy to be Ron Harper or something, you know, like I, I never thought right. I would attain his level. And then you think like how it ended and, and like all the, the mind chatter he had and some of the, it's like, is it, 
Which was an accidental overdose. Is that correct? That was the, yeah. It was an accidental overdose. Like, and he had, a, and <laughs> he dies, people. Um, but he was pretty candid about his drug use and, and, okay. and alcohol abuse. And I think it was really alcohol was his big vice. But then once you go off the deep end, you know, if someone's throwing you, you know, Percocet or whatever, you know, just, just, just add it to the mix. And uh, that made me sad, just, just understanding how, like, how gripping his, his addiction was. Because I, I see some people, and you probably do too, you just think they're, it's part of their persona. Or, like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they can, you know, have a Coke binge, but then they're fine. Um, right. But the more I learned, it's like, no, it's kind of like with some, it's just they're, they're always, like, succumbing to that. Do you think it's just uh, his his way of coping were drugs and alcohol just his only method of coping with possibly being in his head all the time yeah i mean that that's my kind of pop psychologist i'm no uh, no doctor or anything but I, I think it's a mental disorder um and i don't know exactly what it is but it's some sort of mental health it could have been depression again like yeah that's not that's not my uh, my world but the the way to treat it was through alcohol so I, he he would abuse alcohol because of these mental issues it wasn't the other way around it wasn't like right he he would drink too much and that caused mental issues you know and and it can make it worse you know like if, if you're if you're hung over and you're missing like your kid's parent teacher conference that's going to have some mental strife you know right if your wife's yelling at you it's going to have some mental reverberations but the root cause was was mental health and it's one of those one of those things that just kind of continues to snowball because you're you're drinking because you're depressed about this thing (laughs) and then this thing becomes worse because you're drinking exactly it's like fat people eating because they're disappointed in their body i i have that where i like feel like well this didn't work so now i'm gonna do this and and i'm like i know this is making it worse yeah oh yeah i know this will not improve things it's and then some you feel like uh and this was this was particularly sad is like I feel so unworthy of love and affection like like this is what happens I think with a lot of people who commit suicide uh, and don't commit suicide anyone um, but it's it's like they feel they're doing the world a service by being gone you know and that's like the saddest thing I can think of <laughs> yeah, like... I, I'm not laughing at what you said I <laughs> laughing at the the throwaway line of don't kill yourself anyway. <laughs> just like just if, if, if someone's on that ledge they're like no Matt Balaker author of Greg Gerald yeah. the comedian wait story. did he play that back because he kind of mumbled what did he say <laughs> don't kill, I can be don't? a little mono- monotonic in my voice <laughs> yeah <laughs> do or don't kill yourself <laughs> I, I Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was laughing. At, uh, <laughs> well, now they might, and if they do, it's Nick Hoff's fault. It's not, not no, mine. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Um, <laughs> it's no. one of those things. Like that, it's all mental, and and we see it more and more. Uh, I don't know why we get scared of calling something a mental deficiency like it doesn't have to be i mean mental illness means the same thing as mental deficiency but maybe that one's more palatable than the other but it's like all of us have something that makes us stupid (laughs) right and so to deny that or to not like say hey maybe i need help with this it it seems ridiculous because we get help with everything else (laughs) everything else what oh are are you feeling uh 
lethargic because your blood sugar's low, right. eat something. That yeah, have helps. Have a Snickers, yeah. Or, or if you break your arm, they're not just like, oh, like, let it heal I on its guess own. Guess my <laughs> arm was weak. I wasn't supposed to lift all this way up anyway. Yeah. I'll, I'll just sit here with my weak, stupid arm. Yeah. No, go to the doc. Like, get yeah. help. Like, it shouldn't be this stigmatized thing like where i mean yeah I, and i'm glad you brought that up because i think in some ways and this is where i might get in trouble is like i think 10 20 years ago people didn't talk about mental health problems right. now i think we might talk about it too much sure but then act too little it's like bringing up like the the broken arm and or if i'm diabetic and i'm like well i'm never going to go take insulin then i'm being stupid, you know, it's, yes. it's like that that's being negligent that you're, you're putting like your family in harm's way and stuff. But like if, if you have mental health problems and you never do anything yet, you're like, yes, you should admit it. And we should all be open and supportive of those who admit it. But then the next step is doing something about it. Right. Yeah. Get get out there and, and like act because nobody yeah. else is going to act for you. Well, exactly. Not. It's easier said than done, but it's sort of like if, if, if you have high blood pressure and you have to run a few miles, you know, no one's going to run for you. You have to actually like do the work. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you got to send that booking email. You got to, yeah. <laughs> even though you're scared, you don't know what's going to be on the other side. You might regret it the entire time as you're walking <laughs> up that hill. Going, you might fall. You might get I'm laughed so at. Stupid. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, it's it seems like one of those things like and and people looking back, you know, I have that I have a syndrome where I always feel like I could have helped mm. had I known. Yeah. And so rarely would that be the case. But I, I feel like so many people, if they knew they might they might figure out a different way forward to try and be your friend or to be be that support system that you need or talk you into going to see that psychologist or whatever it is, you know, and even in these stupid instances like this, like I only ever met Greg one time mm -hmm. and it was in 2010 when I was auditioning for last comic standing. And I, I read that chapter of, of the book. I just got this book last mm -hmm. week, so I haven't had time to read it all. But, but thank you for reading the chapter that involves what you, I read. So. I really enjoyed and it made me like made me, you know, wish it made me want to watch clips of him more because now 90 percent of people that see his clips see his roasts which right. are great which are great he definitely excelled in that but his stand-up i love that you put little uh, excerpts of his stand-up in there because you could read it and you could feel his voice saying it and it was interesting and when i met him in 2010 and he was very kind to me and and everything you said about there from people's experience saying he let people down gently and that's exactly mm -hmm. what he did with me uh, he I think he was the he was the second one to talk. Andy Kindler made a a jab <laughs> at one of my jokes, okay. which I didn't like. And then he said something to the extent of, you know, it was funny. You're going to be very successful. You can we can all tell that you're you know, you've got it, mm -hmm. but maybe not for this show right now. And so it. You know, I wasn't mad at him. I was mad at Andy Kidley. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what did Natasha Leggero say? Do you remember that? She was nice too. She, yeah. uh, you know, she, the other two had already said something, okay. and so she was like, "Hi, Nick," because we knew each other yeah. a little bit. And she's like, "Hey, you know, that, that was that was good. That was good. <laughs> I, I feel like you've got better stuff or something like that." Um, and it, it was a weird experience for me because I was on the road at that time uh, with some other comics, and we had shows on each side of that 
day. So I literally flew from Tennessee to Los Angeles, like landed early in the morning, like took a little nap, then went and did my audition. And I remember being, I, I must've been ignorant about the whole process because I remember them coming around asking me to, first of all, we're signing all these things. Like you can <laughs> use my likeness. You can yeah. use, you know, you're signing your, what felt like my life away. And at the time I didn't have a manager. I didn't have anything. Right. So I'm just like signing these papers that I don't know what really they say. And mm-hmm. then they come along, can we videotape an interview? And I was like, no, nah, I don't really want to do that. You know, it's a TV show, Hoff. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Get on TV. <laughs> if you're interested yeah. in that interview, because I saw somebody, I don't I don't like cameras, but I'll be perfect for your televised show. <laughs> it, it was so stupid. I, and, and looking back on it, I remember watching Philippe Esperanza doing the interview and hamming it up. And I remember uh, judging him yeah. being a ham doing yeah. that interview. I was like, what a loser doing that interview. And then he ends up winning the whole thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, play the game. This is a TV show. It's It's a show. They yeah. are casting this thing. I remember watching somebody come out of the audition room with like a down look on their face and the producer like with the headset makes them wait a second then they're like wait go back in and and i after the fact i and that person was on the show and after the fact i realized they hadn't done that well but that there was something about them they liked from a casting perspective so Mm -hmm. go give it another shot and that they are a funny person but that i could tell the look on their face when they came out ah that's not what i wanted um so yeah, Greg was very kind, and and but then when he passed away, which I guess was six months later or something like that, I remember thinking, oh, I wish, maybe I should have talked to him. Right, like if my jokes were a little stronger, he'd still be maybe. Had <laughs> I brought the A game and flown in the day before, he he wouldn't have gone through this. He would a little have felt more like well rested. To... It would have, a different story. <laughs> It's happened a couple times in my life where, and it's, it's stupid, but I think, you know, that kind of person, because maybe it's because I have the opposite mentality, maybe because something like that is so far out of my mindset and to spiral in the Chris Farley way where you're just, you know, doing way too many drugs. It's just, it's baffling to me that somebody would still do that given all the cautionary tales that we have. Yeah. You know? it's so far out of me. Do you, do you feel like in writing this book that you gained some more understanding as to what he was going through and why he felt like he, he was either invincible or did he know that this was going to happen? Yeah, it, it's like one of those sense? instances where like the more you learn about something, the more you realize you need to learn a lot more. Uh-huh. <laughs> How you're just kind of scratching the surface. And I, I think some of the the main takeaways are, you know, no one can help you but you when it comes to uh-huh. a lot of addiction. I mean, I shouldn't say that. Like, you have to be, will, you have to want help. Sure. And I think one, one and Jesse Joyce said this well because he is sober, and he's like, I just kind of went along with the twelve steps. I figured they like people. It worked for them, and I'm not going to question right. everything. Where Greg was so analytical, and he'd be like, kind of like what you were saying. He's like, I know the odds are against me. You know, like most people who have addiction issues aren't sober. Most of them like relapse. Many of them die. And I think he really thought, Greg thought, and a lot of addicts feel this way, like the the odds are against them if if you're really doing the research. Uh And I think that's a case where knowing too much can be detrimental because if you just have the attitude like, 
I'm going to shut up and listen and I'm going to do these 12 steps. Like he had a joke, Geraldo had a joke that I think is really funny, but kind of sad. He's like, why do we have to pray for sobriety? Why can't I just pray for moderate drinking? And like, oh. that totally makes sense. You know, it's like, yeah. I get it. But it shows like, if you're kind of questioning every step, you're, you're, you're not going to buy in a hundred percent. And, yeah. and maybe you have less likely to succeed in, in becoming sober. So, I mean, that's something that I learned. And, and I'm not saying his case is representative of, you know, the majority, but I, I think there, there's something to that where it's just way more complicated and there are way more variables uh, than I can ever imagine. And for those who are really analytical, it might be much harder than people who just sort of put their faith in the institution. Right. Right. Surrendering, Surrendering to yeah. something that you can't figure out. You know, I always um, w when it comes to like religion and stuff like that, there's that mm -hmm. huge chunk, that huge leap of faith that you have to have uh, to believe in something that can't really be proven. I feel like intellectuals have a hard time with that as well because they've been so accustomed to being able to. Right. You, you can't see it or prove. It. I mean, that, that's the whole concept of faith. Like, are you, are you you're willing to just trust that what you don't know really is. Mm -hmm. And I think with a lot of people, when it comes to getting sober, that, that's, that's really tough. Yeah, you feel like you can outsmart it or right, something like right. that. In writing this book, you know, going in, you held him in such high esteem. You, he was one of your heroes. He was, I would assume, on your Rushmore of comedy? Oh, yeah. Like, number I yeah. mean, if I had He's to rank one. him, he'd be, probably. I mean, it's hard yeah. to say, but like... Uh, he was the one I would get most excited to see if he was doing, and uh -huh. part of that was he, he wasn't putting out new hours all the time. Uh -huh. um, but I, I was never one to like formally rank comics, but he, uh, when people ask who's your favorite, he would always come up. Right. Chris so, Rock would too, but he'd always be up there. In writing this, did you find that you have more respect for him? less did did it did it shatter your image a little bit <laughs> that's a good very good question I, I think i have more respect for him as a uh, as a person and i think i had more respect for the struggle of because i i just didn't give as much credence to his alcohol abuse as, as it really should have i just thought it was like something that would sneak up here or there okay. um but I, I also, and, and I know he wouldn't want this, but I, I just, I, I, there's a lot more like sorrow I had, you know, like it was more of a tragic figure than yeah. I would have get. I mean, obviously he passed away, but uh, I mean, on one hand there, I look at him and I, and I still do today as like, he did accomplish so much, but he viewed himself as like accomplishing so little and kind of marred by that. And, and that, that's sad, you know, and that's something yeah. I didn't really appreciate. Um, but in terms of, I, I, how he treated others, like what you said was, was like a through line. There was no one, really no one who was just like, Oh, he was a dick to me. And there were people who didn't love him for, for whatever reasons, but like he seemed to treat people really well. And I think that's like the biggest mark of whether like a, of being a good human, like how do you treat others, especially others that can't help you. Uh, and right. I think regularly he treated others very well. He seemed like, the kind of personality where you could see him being a dick. Yeah. Right. And, and he was Someone... so quick. Like he, he's one, like if, if you're doing like, like dozens or, you know, kind of like back and forth at a, t like he could annihilate you. And I think he would, right. but I don't think that was what he wanted to do. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. As comedians, a lot of times we, 
you know, the the laughter is there, and it makes it gives us a high, and it feels good. I as somebody who's a generally very happy person mm-hmm. and pretty level headed, I do. And and people listening might say this: I hate you guts. Uh, <laughs> like once a month, I will feel down. Yeah, there's usually one day a month where I can and I feel it, and I'm a little bit nippy, and I just feel like that you know everything's a little darker. Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe my career isn't where I want it to be, but I feel like probably that's everybody. Yeah. Um, but once a month that happens, and I attribute that a lot of times to this enormous high that we feel from being on stage. You know, getting that immediate feedback. What I did, what I wanted to have happen, worked. These people said they enjoyed it. They liked me. You know, they liked my comedy means they like me, right? Right. Yeah. They're, the, they're indistinguishable. It's, it's approval. Laughter is approval, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're and, a good boy, Nicholas. <laughs> and uh, But then you, the show's over. Everybody leaves. They go back to their lives. And slowly, but a lot quicker than you want it to, that laughter, that feeling disappears. And now you're alone in a hotel room. And Chasing the dragon. <laughs> you question you're questioning, was I funny? Was I funny? You're listening back to that tape. You know, eh, that I thought that got a bigger laugh right. in the room. <laughs> you, maybe I'm not funny. <laughs> and and you work nights, so you stay up late. Most comedians, mm-hmm. are you still a night owl or have you transitioned? Oh, yeah. L- less so, but yeah. My, my, yeah. my default is night owl dumb. Later. And there's, yeah. there's a darkness that creeps in, not just from the lack of sunshine, but just your brain starts asking you these questions. And I got to imagine that if you're smarter than most people, then you have a lot more questions. Right. And I, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Like he would do the roads so much and then you have this high and he said, you feel like a million bucks after a show um, and he can't go party or he shouldn't. So yeah. what do you do? You watch a movie? I mean, it's 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 kind of hard to have like a, me- a medium, kind of like healthy, yes. cool down process, especially yes, when you're on your healthy. own. Yeah. After the comedy clubs closed, there's no healthy options. No. Usually, I just <laughs> talk about in terms of food, but yeah, it's everything. You're, you're not going to go for a, for a wheatgrass. <laughs> yeah, let's go bang out a uh, you know let's go do a some five mile run and some <laughs> and a smoothie. No, it's not going to happen. Let's have a series of planks, and we'll just you know sit in warrior pose. Did anything you write in the book then resonate in your own life, where you were like, "I got to get my shit together," or or something that? What What was the biggest thing you learned from writing the book? Um, that you know your 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 kids are more important than your stand up. <laughs> okay, that was probably something I took away. Um, and I because was, of the way he felt or because of the way you well, felt I, as you were ignoring through, them while through writing? Watch, yeah, both. Because um, I did ignore them a lot during the writing <laughs> process. But w- one thing that was really heartening was even when he you know, was, was kind of struggling with, with booze and pills and all that, he, he seemed to like be – it was never in question that he loved his kids and that they knew it. And that uh-huh. like he would do fun things with them. And even though he wasn't perfect, none of us are, but like – that that resonated was like they're only young for so long <laughs> and and like i'm not saying like never leave them to go do a show but like make it a priority to have so they know who you are like that that was something right. and then another thing that that stuck out was like 
we all feel, and, and it, it sounds messed up, but I, I kind of felt a relief that like Greg Giraldo was where I wanted to be and he thought he was a failure. Right. So we're all thinking we're failures. So in a sense, it gave me a little bit of like breath as I, you know, just, just, I could kind of exhale a little bit and be like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, if I don't get that like bigger gig I'm hoping for, if this booker doesn't pass me, like if, if I am passed, I'll still feel like a failure to, to some other thing I'm trying for. Like there's never going to be like, okay, we're good. We're good. You know, so you have to find satisfaction in other things and a lot of happiness is fleeting, but yeah. recognize it recognize it when, when, when it's there because it won't last. But if, if you don't recognize it, then, you know, what's the point? And if you recognize the happiness, is the point of that so that you remember the happiness or I, what? I, I think it's just to experience the moment. Um, like, remember, it was a, a American Beauty. Like, I mean, Kevin Spacey is a great role model for so many of us in, 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 in every aspect of his life. <laughs> um, but I, I remember at the end of the movie, uh, it said, like, stop trying to hold on to everything. And I think that that's kind of something that, that resonated is like <clears throat> Greg Giraldo died at 44. He would have had a great career ahead of him, but at some point he'd still be dead. And there's still like a legacy, you know, whether it's whether he died at 44 or 94, our, our, our time here is brief. But sure. during that time, there's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of good moments. There's a lot of wonderful things that happen. And no matter what, they're going to end. You know, but I think just kind of understanding the ephemeral nature. Uh, I didn't mean to get all, all kooky on you, but I, no, I think I like it. it's it's sort of relieving in a way. Like like what you're saying, and, and I'm not perfect at all about it. But like when you're talking about doing shows, like I, I know now, like even how however good a show is, I'm not going to feel that great about it tomorrow. But it's still okay to remember, like oh, that was fun last Friday when you and I performed. That was like a yeah. a, a good memory I have. And in, in a few years, I'll look back at that and be like, that was a good memory. And I don't have to hold on to it like that's the only good memory I'll have performing with my friends or something like that. But just recognizing that in while something's happening and after it happens, that was fun. And just kind okay. of – it's almost like putting a little memo, like put an F next to it like or like a, a, a smiley face. Like that, that, was a, that was a positive time. And there's going to be like you said, once a month, you're down. I'm sure more than once a month, I get really down. And, and and it's also important to know that those down times don't last forever. Like uh, right. when yeah. when you're low like that, it's no matter what you do, it's still it's it's going to change. Sure. So yeah. everything's temporary. <laughs> do is this the type of thing that you try to pass on to your kids? Like have you? Uh, it's more it's more to... wiping uh, uh, front to back. That that's the more <laughs> the more tangible. Stand up. Well, I've when got you, that covered. Okay? okay. If they want to be fans of mine. Like the other day, I told one of my sons, I was like, you know, you get more if you, when you stand up if you wipe. And he's like, I know that, Dad. And so then I felt pretty good as, as, as being a hold, hold on. We were just fun. wrapping things up, and now you got <laughs> weird. What did you just say? You teach your kid to stand up and wipe? Yeah. You get more. You get, you get... Everything you've said for this entire hour and 12 <laughs> minutes is now null and void. Oh, Nothing. Shit. You blow it. Try it. Try Do an experiment. Standing do an ex up. Oh, come on, Start man. Start sitting down, finish standing up. That's, uh, that's my motto. Try it. Oh, see, see, uh, I have yelled at my children for standing up and <laughs> okay, wiping. Well, it's I everywhere. Used to like... Okay, well, we can edit this part out. So, you okay. know, <laughs> I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to cut this from the thing. <laughs> it's, it's, no, your, we'll it's your it podcast. In. We'll leave it it's in and Hoffcast. let the audience at home weigh in. Let, let them <laughs> This let can them be the decide. controversial bit. Stand or this sit. Is, 
Yeah, this is everything else we said about no, suicide. Sorry, I, I, I think no, when, when it comes to like uh, kids, is uh, I, I just want them to have memories of me. So like sure. if I'm if I'm hit by a car tomorrow, and I want those memories to be generally favorable. Like I know there's stuff I've done that isn't good or regret, but like whether it's coaching or just the mundane stuff, like giving them cereal or, or scrambling eggs and and sitting with them at breakfast. Yeah. I, I think as long as it's 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 consistent, you know, if I croak tomorrow. You want them uh, to be sad when you're done. I, I just, though, yeah, I want them to be sad, basically. I, want, <laughs> I mean, I know they won't like, be, I want them to be too sad. Uh, finally, the son but, of a bitch but is But they'll, they'll have some memories of me. That's that's really what I want. That's important. That's your legacy. How, how about you? I mean, what what do you what what do you think it means to be? Uh, my white, kid's not white writing a book about sad. my life. <laughs> my kid's not writing a book about my life within the first ten days. I'm gone. Then I failed as a father. Um. Yeah, a legacy. You want them to remember somebody very early on, my kid, uh, my my son, when I really started hitting the road a ton. Well, I I didn't notice it before kids because I was just out there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can call my wife and talk to her. That's not a big deal. But when my kid was really little and I remember I was getting on an airplane and I was talking to my somebody who used to be a friend um, and they said, how old's your son? And I said, oh, he's eight months or whatever I said, or a year and a half or whatever he was at that time. And they go, Oh, so if you die in a plane crash, your kid will never know who you were. <laughs> and I was like, you sack of crap. And the next day I got life insurance <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I just thought about that. Like, I want them to remember me like my youngest is four. And I think maybe she's starting to make memories that will last because kind of my earliest memories were around four. Yeah. So at least, She'll kind of be like, I kind of remember dad on the toilet. And if not, she'll remember the life insurance money that, that helped. Yeah, for thanks, the, dad. For college, for yeah. You missed a payment, and uh, <laughs> and it was canceled. No thanks. <laughs> appreciate it. No. Uh, well, I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks for, thanks oh, thank for taking you. time this to come on the Hoffcast with me. Uh, yeah, go guys, go on Amazon if you want to learn more about Greg Geraldo or just a comic's life and kind of take some I, I'm looking forward to reading more of it and, and like kind of going through it because a lot of us I think feel these feelings that that Greg was uh, going through and, and there's something that can be learned from from him and I think it'll be interesting and, and give you some laughs along the way and just the short amount I read I already laughed a couple times so thanks for writing that book and thanks for coming on here uh, my pleasure thank you Nick. Uh, um, the one thing that I, I try to ask all my guests uh, before I let you go is if there's one person, because I feel like so many times, you know, somebody dies and then we tell the world what we thought of them. And so I want to give you an opportunity to give a shout out to somebody still living that you think deserves a little more uh, time in the limelight or some somebody or something that you want to, like, kind of help promote. Okay, right now I'm gonna help. I'm gonna help promote my mom because uh, okay. she did a lot of stuff that never got attention. You know, like uh, cooking, cleaning, making sure we went to school, uh, uh -huh. just dealing with three boys uh, and our grossness, and not uh -huh. giving her the time to like listen and you know kind of have her feelings. Uh, kind of always putting others ahead of herself. And yeah. uh, so, mom, I love you. Thank you for doing that. Mrs. Balaker on on uh, on Facebook can she be reached on Facebook? No, thankfully she can't be, and I think that's what I love most about her. She's not on any social media. All right, just I can send it, it to her. Yeah, 
Put it out. Get, give it to Matt. Say, good job, yeah. Mom. Your, good job, your, your boy's yeah. doing great, and he finished a book, and he's, doing, <laughs> he's being a great father, all this. So, uh, yeah, I, I like that one. Mom, moms deserve a shout-out. So nice job, Angie. <laughs> well done. And uh, Matt, once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Everybody can, great seeing you. Yeah, thanks, man. 